know-it-all? Do you annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? Do you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually? Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we take the smartest people we know and make them look dumb and then smart again. I'm Helen Hong, and now from the Angel City Brewery in downtown Los Angeles, here's our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Helen Hong. Oh, what a great crowd. Helen, how are you? What have you been up to since our last recording? I have been trying to learn useful phrases in Turkish. Oh. Such as... I don't eat animals with four legs. Okay, and, and how does that sound? Darn if I know. All right. I, I learned, I, I've actually learned in the past week that Turkish is one of the hardest languages to actually speak. Okay, because and why, like, why are you learning it, by the way? I should point that out. Because I'm going to Turkey. She's in, going to Turkey, in ladies and like gentlemen. In four hours. Wow. All right, let's do a show. Today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and, frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Helen, who is up first? She is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of several books, including Rin Tin Tin and The Orchid Thief. It's Susan Orlean. Susan Orlean! I just want to say, um, I want to win. Oh. Ooh. Coming up hot with All the right. competitive streak. We like that. A lot of times people come on the show and they're like, you know what? It's just a game. It's just a podcast. I no, don't no, care. No. I have other things going on uh, in my uh, life. Uh, uh, but you, uh, uh. you prioritize a victory. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Are you a competitive person? Yeah. yeah okay. I'm, a, I'm a hysterical winner and a hysterical <laughs> loser. So oh. I guess I am competitive. I think yeah. that's what we're learning, Susan Orlean. A lot of people know the book that Helen mentioned, The Orchid Thief. Um, Hold for applause. Thank as you. As you should. And praise to you for not calling it The Orchard Thief, which happens to me <laughs> You're kidding. all the time. No, yes. you're kidding. I was actually introduced recently at, I was giving a talk at Columbia University where you'd think the average IQ was fairly high and mm -hmm. people know how to read. And I was introduced, but it included the person going on and saying, you know, she worked on the orchard thief and she mm. did this with the orchard thief <laughs> and studying orchards oh, in no. Florida. And I thought, I don't know, maybe I wrote another book <laughs> called The Orchard <laughs> Thief and I completely forgot. So, so you, didn't uh, correct the, you didn't even correct the record? I, you know what, I thought it would embarrass him, so I didn't. Okay. I was happy, though, to note that there were a number of people in the audience who were going, ooh, every time he said orchard. It was like, cringe. Well, you have another, you have a new book that's going to be coming out this yeah. year. What is that called, and how can we mess that one up? It's called The Orchard Thief. Wait a minute. <laughs> Covering all her bases. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, I have a book coming out in October called The Library Book. Uh, and it is about the largest library fire in the history of the U.S., which was here in 1986 at the downtown library in right, Los right Angeles. Right nearby, wow. yeah. Um, so it's a book where I re-examine that arson and also write about libraries in general and why I get sort of emotional and teary when I think about libraries and what they've meant to me. So wow. And if, if libraries mean a lot to you, that fire was particularly devastating. If I'm not mistaken, it was oh, over, yeah. over a million books, I think, got destroyed. It was a million oh, no. books that were either destroyed or damaged. Wow. And Darn, those it, things are so flammable. I know. <laughs> Nobody knew. Yeah. It was Darn. a huge shock to everybody. <laughs> um, Oopsies. Yeah. Yeah, good thing the was... Kindle is much safer in a fire. <laughs> right. Uh, where are you in the process of the book? Is, is it finished? Done! Yay! Congratulations! Yes! Yep, I'm done, which is no small feat. It was a long, long, long process, and it'll be out in October. Fantastic. Yay. And you can even pre-order it. Oh, well, we already are, have committed to, to, to ordering. Last and thing I want to ask you about quickly, uh, you are what they call a Guggenheim Fellow. I am. What, do, what exactly does fellow, that get you? A fellow S. A fellow, oh, okay. Is it a, a, it's a No, no, it really word? is generic. Okay, a you're a fellow. fellow. Yes. Um, you get free well, admission to the museum? What, what do you get? Right. No, you get a cash award. And, Ooh, um, I like the, it. Yeah, Helen woke up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you apply with a particular project that you're working mm -hmm. on, and so I applied as I was working on the library book. So... They gave me some funding toward it, and um, 
you know, a little little badge saying Guggenheim Fellow, which is very... And you're exciting. not wearing the badge at all times? I actually, what I did is had it embedded in my flesh. Ah, okay. So Excellent. I well, would never want to lose it. So. Well, congratulations on Thank being you. what I believe is our first Guggenheim Fellow. We're happy to have you. Miss Susan Orlean, ladies Yay. and gentlemen. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And Helen, against whom will Ms. Orlean be competing tonight? He is an actor and comedian who plays Mr. Peanut Butter on Netflix's BoJack Horseman and hosts the podcast Spontanea Nation. It's Paul F. Tompkins! Paul F. Tompkins! Hi. Hi. <laughs> Paul, you're one of the most sharply dressed men in comedy. Helen, thank you, you really very are. much. He's thank wearing you. like a beautiful pocket square. It's and... true. Ah. <laughs> By the way, I wish you guys had told me um, who the panel was going to be tonight because um, this is awkward, but I am the person who started that library fire. <laughs> wow. Awkward. <laughs> What, 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 I can, I'd like to be able to slot that into my book now. It's not too late. Yo, you didn't find that in your research, that it was uh, set by Paul F. Tompkins? It said Paul F., but I didn't know. Oh, that. there's so many. Yeah. yeah. So many. Well, it happened during a, an AA meeting, so we were all just, we were all just using initials at You're that identifying point. by your first that's, and middle initial. That's right. Yes, okay. That's right. That's right. Was it an intentional setting of a fire? Or? It was totally an accident. I was reading a book on how to set fires. Oh. They were kind of asking for it, really, well, by having I was that like, book. Let's see yeah. how well I do. <laughs> and I did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Rookie of the year, huh? <laughs> Bojack Horseman, the fifth season is coming out soon. Congratulations. That's correct. Thank you. Uh, how far in advance are, are you involved in the process? And, and where, where in the process uh, is the show right now? It's coming out, I think, in, in the fall? Yes, we recorded all eight seasons, I want to say, ten years ago. Oh, and... really? Before Netflix even existed? Yeah, they're, wow. being, they're being... It's a very painstaking animation process. Mm -hmm. They do it as a flip book, and oh. then they film the flip book. So, oh, wow. Uh, no, we, we recorded the fifth season, I think... Um, late last year. We finished recording late last year, and uh, then they send it to be animated, and then um, it comes out in the summer. So I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very excited for everyone to see it. And I also forget, the problem is I forget where, um, where we are in the storylines, right. because I can't remember what I have watched that has already been released and what I have said that was recorded and yet to be animated. So. Right. I inadvertently spoil things for my wife all the time. Uh. She, she loves the show, and I have I have revealed like relationships that have ended uh. before she's seen it, and because I think that she's already seen it, mm -hmm. but she hasn't. Oh can no! I, can I actually insert something here? Yes, Just, please. It's sort of circular, but my chickens, <laughs> who um, will come up later in the show, and then I'll tell a story about no, my chickens. And by the way, the actually, chickens will literally come up later in the show. Yeah. They will come onto the stage during the show. They're, it's quite a treat. They're <laughs> they backstage they, as we speak. My yes. son named them after all BoJack Horseman characters. What? what? It's wonderful to hear. Synchronicity. Yeah, it, but it's it's embarrassing when like a neighbor farmer comes over and. Says, said, what, what's this one's name? And so, that's Princess Caroline, the rooster. And <laughs> what is this guy naming his chickens Odysseus or something? Like, <laughs> what makes him so great? Yeah. Your chickens are, are, are in tune with pop culture. Yeah, this it's is important. my rooster, Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> uh, you've hosted and guested on many podcasts. How did you first get into podcasting? Man, oh man! I think the first one I—the first one I can remember doing was uh, backstage at the UCB theater. This guy Matt Belknap, who is the co-host of uh, Jimmy Pardo's uh, Never Not Funny podcast. Mm -hmm. I remember downloading it from iTunes, and that was—that's the earliest one that I can remember. Mm -hmm. But the—the the form as it is now and how it has taken over my life would definitely be Comedy Bang Bang. Sure. Was doing characters on that show and realizing what the medium could be—that you could do whatever you wanted. And uh, on, uh, speaking of Comedy Bang Bang, if I'm not mistaken, you have the record of having made the most guest appearances on the show. That's absolutely correct. All what? right. What? You're do. the bang bangiest? I'm always available. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the characters that, you, that you've done uh, repeatedly is uh, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yes, that's correct. Uh, where did that uh, inspiration Wait, for Lord that... Wait, Lord Andrew Lloyd, Lord Webber? No, Andrew Lloyd... Oh. 
Lord, hold on. It's Lord Andrew, Lord Lloyd, yeah. Lord, yeah. Lloyd Webber. I thought right. he had doubled up on the Lord. Yes. I was like, oh. And I believe he is an orchard thief. No? All right. Can uh, you imagine the gall of stealing an entire orchard? <laughs> yeah, like, one orchid, I think we could under- Sure, anyone yeah, can anyone do that. Take an orchid, yeah. Fits in your coat. Well, and uh, he's royalty, so. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, what, 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 uh, what motivated you to want to do that character? We, I, I used to host a show on VH1 called Best Week Ever, and we did a sketch about, uh, you know, we, we would show pop culture clips and make jokes about them. And there was a clip of Andrew Lloyd Webber on American Idol, um, and he was coaching the, the singers, the contestants, and he was trying to get them into the mood to sing this song from Cats, and the way he was talking <laughs> to them was now. ridiculous. Yeah. And he was explaining, now you notice that, she's just an old glabopus. <laughs> it's like, these 20-year-olds don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And so that was so we I imitated him on the show and that was the that was the first time I did it and so when Scott Ackerman the host of Comedy Bang Bang asked me to do uh, the like told me I could do characters that was one of the first ones I did um, I did a lot of stuff that I did on Best Week Ever <laughs> I was like oh, why not do that too uh, Cake Boss Ice Tea like a lot of those impre- early impressions came from uh, VH from uh, uh, Best Week Ever on VH1 very interesting and are you a fan by the way of Lord Weber's work I mean. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Uh, I, it's not a solo project, but Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> is unassailable. That that show is full of bangers. I watched that 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 NBC live concert performance of it, and it was great. I, I say this unironically. I enjoyed it start to finish. It is a good show. <laughs> good. Well, if Lord Weber hears this, we'll we'll keep that part in. <laughs> All right, uh, let's give a nice hand to both of our guests. Now, Paul and Susan, we've asked each of you to provide us with a few topics outside of your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Now, Susan, you said you know a lot about women's fashion, 80s music from the Congo, and chicken husbandry. Again, I'm a, I'm a well-rounded girl. Yes, I'm sure our regular listeners are thinking again. Uh, 80s you, music from the Congo, yeah. boring. Why don't, you give it, why don't you tell us a little bit about, each, about your interest in each of those? So you said you know a lot about women's fashion. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a woman and I wear clothing, and <laughs> so it it just kind of happened. Um, but also, it's uh, it's a, an avocation of mine to. Ooh. I like looking at clothes and learning about. I mean, I follow designers the way I used to follow bands, which is really um, a sign of the times because I just knew everything about every band. Like screaming and tape- taking your top off, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. throwing my underpants yeah. at, like, Calvin Klein. It was like, <laughs> Oh, I'm yeah. sure he loves that. Uh, um, you also said you know a lot about 1980s music from the Congo. Uh, I do, and this, I mean, I know you've probably had a lot of guests on (laughs) with that expertise. Um, I stumbled into this music when I was living in Portland, Oregon, and made friends with a a record store owner, and he turned me on to this music, which was just mind-blowing, and it was hard to get the music then. Now you can actually get all of it on YouTube, which is right. amazing. Well, that's why 1980s Congolese music is sweeping the nation. I know. Yeah, yeah you noticed that too? Yeah, I have. Oh, these um, kids today. Yes, yeah, so I, I got very obsessed with it, and it was one of the great things about it is because it wasn't in English, I had no idea what any of the lyrics were, and more recently, I read a book that actually <laughs> explained some of the lyrics, which it wasn't what I had imagined. Yes. It turns uh, out you were dancing to Die a White Lady Would Die. Yeah, or I mean, there was some of that, and yeah. then some of them were paid. <laughs> there was some there of was that. Some yeah, of that. A, little, a little bit. Just some, enough. some of them were paid political announcements. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. I mean, they, they were but amazing catchy. music. Yeah. Yeah. But they were paid for by politicians oh. because that was a big way of getting the vote Absolutely. in Congo. And so it was like, vote for that guy that you saw on TV last <laughs> night. He's really great. And my favorite song is actually a um, PSA about using condoms um, That's always to yeah. protect against AIDS. And it's yeah. really all about AIDS. Yeah, we had that here also. Wasn't that salt and pepper? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then finally, you said you know a lot about chicken husbandry. I do, and that is, um, I mean, uh, of all of my fields of ec expertise, I would say this is the one that brings me the most pleasure. I am a chicken owner. Wow. Mm. Or I should say, I, I, <laughs> I coexist with my chicken friends. Um, and I've had, well, at one point I had about 18, and then a raccoon killed them all. So oh. I, oh. I know. It, was, uh, it didn't want to coexist with that raccoon, huh? Yeah. yeah. And um, now I'm back to a modest, modest little flock of four. Will if, they hug you? Because those well, are my they, favorite they YouTube have, clips. They don't have little arms. But they, they like you wings. hug them. Do you hug the? Do you do you hug your chickens? <laughs> yes, even though I'm constantly getting these threatening emails from the CDC saying, "Don't kiss your chickens." We're seeing, we're seeing a huge spread. I didn't say anything about kissing. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not hugging the kissing. This escalated. Yeah, yeah I really. Get, I get, I kiss my chickens. You know, an, an, an innocent person doesn't deny something they've not been accused of. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> I just asked you about hugging. I said yeah. nothing about tongue. I, did I say kiss? I think it's time to move on to Paul's topics. <laughs> Paul, you said you know a lot about SCTV. Yes. Neil Gaiman's Sandman. That's correct. And the movie Jaws. Yes. Now tell us a little about each of those. Uh, you said you know a lot about SCTV. SCTV, I loved since I was a kid. And uh, I remember watching it first on PBS um, when it was like this weird show. Um, the half hour episodes, like the earliest version of the show. And then when they started doing those, they started doing, this is insane. 90-minute sketch comedy episodes that would air, um, I think, after Letterman on Friday nights on NBC. What? And um, I would stay up and watch them with my dad. That was like, my dad was a very quiet and remote figure in my house. He might still be there, for all I know. Um, <laughs> but that was one of the only things that we really bonded over was watching that show together. Um, and I was, I, I bought the DVDs. Um, when they came out, Rhino put out the DVDs, and I was terrified to watch them because if they didn't hold up, it was going to crush me. Mm. And like cats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cats, I was okay with. But they're they're funnier than I remember them. They're oh. absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. that's terrific. So and then you also said know. you know a lot about Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Yeah, that was. I was working at a comic book store when that series came out. It was a very short-lived job. Um, I had been fired from some other place and was about to get fired from the comic book store. And, and Sandman came out, and I was, I kind of liked comics when I was a kid, but this, when this came out, this was the, the beginning of a whole new way of doing comics that had started with, you know, like Alan Moore, you know, that, that where comics were, were becoming more for, uh, grown-ups maybe, that there were stories that got a little deeper and a little more uh, emotional than superhero comics, and it just blew me away, and I devoured it. Great, and then finally you said you know a lot about the movie Jaws. I saw the movie Jaws when I was way too young to see it, and <laughs> I loved it so much, and it's one of those movies that if it is on, I will uh, watch it from where I am seeing it to the end of the movie if I can. Um, I never get tired of it. I've seen it a million times. And it's just a, um, it, it's one of those movies that I will still discover new things in. And even like any kind of minor like plot holes or whatever that happen, I don't care. There was a, there was a great, there was a, there was like, this was the 4th of July a couple years ago. Richard Dreyfuss's children were watching the movie for the first time in forever, and they were discussing all the problems they had with the movie. <laughs> and it was hilarious, and it did not impact my enjoyment of the film at all. I still love it. I don't care. Great. Well, later on, we'll ask each of you some in-depth trivia questions about one of these topics. What? <laughs> it was in the email, Paul, I promise. Oh, was it towards the end? <laughs> a little bit. It was a very small <laughs> right. font that matched the color. I'm a skimmer. What can I All say? Right. Uh, but first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. Now, if either of you gives an incorrect answer, the other person has a chance to take away some of those points. Your subject today, lost and found. Up first, Susan with lost. Now, Susan, they both can get you lost, but what is the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? A labyrinth and a maze. A labyrinth goes to an end point, and a maze, you go get back to the beginning. All right. 
Anything else you'd like to add or just simply that? Um, there's usually a scary monster at the end of All a right. labyrinth. Okay. And not a maze is in the English countryside and it's carved into lovely shrubs. <laughs> lovely shrubs in and the English countryside. And there's snacks. I'm so glad I asked really? this follow-up question because I'm learning so much more. There are snacks in a maze. Yes. Okay. <laughs> a labyrinth is a, more of a BYOB affair. <laughs> yeah. No, you are the snack in oh. a labyrinth. Oh. The most dangerous right. snack. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, we have Susan's answer. We don't know yet if she is correct. Paul, if you don't think she's got it exactly right, you can try to steal the points by giving us the correct answer. What do you think, Paul? I feel like a labyrinth is a, uh, a type of maze where the goal is to get to the center, and a maze, uh, the goal is to just find your way out of it. The end. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, we must find our way out of this segment, so let's go to <laughs> Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. A labyrinth has only one path, and no matter how much the path might twist and turn, you can't get lost if you just keep moving forward. You usually work your way toward the middle and then out again. There's only one entrance and one exit. This is called unicursal. A maze is multicursal, which means that there are many possible paths and branches, but they might lead to dead ends or back to where you started, and there may be more than one entrance or exit. Now, that's right. So if you draw a spiral, that is a labyrinth to the center. But if you start drawing other paths off that spiral that lead to either dead ends or another solution, then it's a maze. So a labyrinth is easier, but also may have David Bowie. So uh, what does that mean as far as our points go, Helen? I'm going to give Susan one point because she got labyrinth correct. She didn't quite get maze correct and I think I'm going to give Paul also a point because he got maze correct in the way that uh, you find your way out. All right, so that's one point each as we go into our next one. All right. We're tied. We're tied. We're... All right, up next, Paul, your subject today, found. Your subject today comes from a listener, Scott J. Langto of Alhambra, California. Paul, they both lead to finding something out, but what is the difference between discern and distinguish? Yeah. Discern and distinguish. Distinguish, I believe, is if you are separating one thing from another thing. You are distinguishing one, you're distinguishing two similar things from each other. Discern, I think, is you're figuring something out um, by observations. All right, I observe that that is your answer, and now we'll go to Susan to see if she thinks uh, Paul's wrong or not. Um. Well, I would say when you distinguish something, there are no snacks, and when you dis <laughs> when you discern, then there are. I like that everything for you is, is based on a snack-based <laughs> protocol. I think that's important. She's my kind of people. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, I have found that we must end this segment. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. To discern is simply to detect, recognize, or identify, usually with the eyes, but not necessarily. To distinguish is to recognize the difference between two or more things. So as an example, you could say, I discern that something smells in my refrigerator and I distinguish that it's not the rotting milk, it's the rotting cottage cheese. And I discern from that information that Helen needs to throw her groceries away before she goes to Turkey. Yeah. Okay, very good. Yeah. What does that mean as far as our points go, Helen? I think Paul got both of those correct. I think he did as well. So let's get a recap at the end of this first round. At the end of the first round, Susan Orlean has one point and Paul F. Tompkins has three points. That's right, but those scores are bound to change as we move on to topics that our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself! This is Mirror Universe Adam Pranica here to tell you not to listen to the greatest discovery on MaximumFun.org. This is Mirror Universe Ben Harrison uncharacteristically agreeing with you despite the fact that you are my enemy. The one thing that you must never do is enjoy our bit of off-season Star Trek Discovery programming where we talk about the first season of Star Trek Discovery while at the same time unpacking news and information about the upcoming season two. So do not tune in and download The Greatest Discovery on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate it one star on Apple Podcasts. Do you like trivia? Well, you're listening to a trivia podcast, so I'm guessing yes. Well, you know what? I do too. 
In fact, aside from hosting Go Fact Yourself, a highlight of my week is playing in a live trivia night with friends at a local bar. And the great people at Geeks Who Drink host weekly live trivia nights in over 1,000 bars, restaurants, and craft breweries in 48 states. It's free to play, you can win prizes, and the trivia is top-notch. Their editor-in-chief is six-time Jeopardy! champion Christopher Short. And if you really want to put yourself to the test, check out Geek Bowl, America's largest trivia night, hosted annually by Geeks Who Drink. The next Geek Bowl will be in Las Vegas on March 2nd, 2019. For information on Geek Bowl, weekly trivia nights, or their special theme quizzes, go to geekswhodrink.com. That's geekswhodrink.com. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself, where our score is Paul F. Tompkins with three points and Susan Orlean with one point. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, everybody. Susan Orlean, of your many interests, you gave us a lot to work with tonight. You told us you know a lot about women's fashion, 80s music from the Congo, and chicken husbandry. Tonight, we want to talk to you about chicken husbandry. Woo! <laughs> Yay! Yes. Now, uh, tell us again, how and why are you <laughs> knowledgeable about chicken husbandry? Well, I kind of fell in love with chickens about 10 years ago. And I one day was driving to the CVS, and I saw that someone um, had a sign saying, you know, for sale, chickens. And I stopped, and I came home with chickens, but forgot <laughs> I forgot the shampoo, which is mm. why I was on my way to CVS. Mm. And I love my chickens, and I, I had them on and off, depending on which predator killed them, um, for the last 10 years. So is it difficult to get emotionally attached to a chicken, given that they're so delicious to so many <laughs> so many predators? It is, because when one of my chickens got sick, um, and I took her to the vet, and I was sitting in the waiting room, and people had their puppies and their cats, and and... I had her in a, a carrying case that I actually usually use for my cat, and everyone said, oh, well, is your, something wrong with your cat? And I said, well, no, it's a chicken. And <laughs> this is a farming area, and people looked at me like, you're actually bringing your chicken to the vet. <laughs> right, right. Um, unfortunately, we had to put her to sleep, oh. and I had her then cremated, and my oh. husband had a freaking fit. Because to put her to sleep and um, <laughs> cremate her costs like $200. And, and he said, do you know how much roast chicken costs at the grocery store? It's like six ninety nine. And then, you, and then chicken. you cover the so ears I, of every other chicken. I know. Like, Don't no, listen I, to I, him. I started crying. Although, to be fair, that but must be the her. that must be the best-smelling crematorium in, in the tri-state oh, area. Oh, your, oh, your mouth can't help but water. Oh, I, I, if I may, I, yes, wish, I wish that when someone had asked you if something wrong with your cat, <laughs> you had said, I don't know, take a look. <laughs> Do you, do you study, or, or how do you learn to, to, to take care of these chickens? How do you keep up I with the latest trends? I actually got a bunch of books. I mean, lots of books, which I read like a typical rookie, <laughs> and was online a lot reading. Because, you know, you suddenly have chickens, and you think, wow, I have no idea what to do with these. <laughs> and what, what, what surprised you uh, that you learned, or in the, or in the process um, of raising these chickens? Uh, well, I like every person in the world, I was shocked that the hens could lay eggs when I didn't yet have a rooster, which was one of the s more ridiculous assumptions. Mm -hmm. It's like saying women can't get their period unless they're married, you know. Um, it's like if, if women... Think about if it. only that were true. It's yeah. Like... Um, it is... Darn it. It is strange, I don't think women though. would ever get married. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is like if human women gave birth to dolls sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly, exactly it, Paul. Um, does, does your family get involved in, in uh, taking care of the chickens as well? Well, my son has always been big on naming them. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm really the sole caretaker. I can't get anybody else to... I mean, they'll come and look, and they, of course, love the eggs, but sure. when it comes to... No, you're a single farm, chicken parent. Farm chores. <laughs> I'm the farm chore 
go-to yeah. for sure. Yeah. And by the way, I, I should have said this at the beginning uh, for us city folk. Just to be clear, uh, husbandry is raising or breeding. It's not marrying the chicken. Just to be, just to be clear. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could marry them. I suppose. Oh, in New York, it's legal want. now. <laughs> yes. oh, fantastic. All right. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in chicken husbandry to test your mastery in the subject with our expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show off, here are five trivia questions about the topic, each worth one point. Now, if you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Paul, <laughs> do, do listen closely. Yes. Because if Susan answers incorrectly and you know the correct answer, you can steal. Oh, eat do, me, do chicken you? knowledge. Yes. <laughs> Paul, Paul by the way, how much do you know about chicken husbandry? Um, you know, I know that you got to give them give that grain. <laughs> All right. You gotta give him that grain. Well, Susan, wow. you better do well in this because Paul certainly. That's dazzling. Is ready to steal. <laughs> they love it. I don't even know what to say. I, I give up. I'm just surrendering. Well, well, let's let's play this out and see what happens before the inevitable. Gotta give him that grain Ooh, answer comes up I later in the quiz. A great question. Here we go. Question number one for Susan Orlean about chicken husbandry. A sentence I never thought I would utter. <laughs> What popular breed of chicken was for decades given a voice by Mel Blanc in Warner Brothers cartoons? Foghorn Leghorn, which is an American Leghorn. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. The breed is Leghorn. <laughs> Number two, Susan. How do you tell a rooster from a hen just by looking at its legs? Just by looking at its... Oh, oh. Uh, roosters have spurs, which are these little claws that stick out the back, which they then in a very crafty way, kick you with Ooh. when you're in the coop trying to be a good chicken husband. <laughs> Again, they sound like delightful pets. Helen, <laughs> is that correct? That sounded painful, but that was correct. That is correct. They have spurs. The roosters do and the hens do not. Uh, you're two for two. Here is question number three. What hierarchical system was first observed with chickens and has since been applied to almost any system that has more dominant and less dominant members? Well, there's hen pecking. I wonder if that is what you're looking for. What's the name of the system? The system is peck the out of the other chickens. <laughs> Helen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say she got it correct. I'm going to say so as well. Pecking order. Pecking, pecking order. order. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. We'll take your more Sorry. artful approach. Whatever you got to do to get through the day, am I right? <laughs> no? All right. Uh, fun fact, the more dominant chickens do actually peck the less dominant ones, sometimes even to death. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, it, it, wonderful pets for children. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Susan, you were three for three. Here's question number four. Most chickens are a standard size, about the size of a chicken. But people with less space... <laughs> That's what the question says, Paul. Uh, but people with less space can raise miniature chickens that are about one quarter the size. What are these smaller breeds called? Bantams. Ellen? That is correct. That is correct. The Bantam chicken. Wow, Susan, you're killing it. You know what? I'm actually shocked. I know a lot about chicken husbandry. <laughs> yes, it's a good thing you said that to us. Yeah. No you're idea. killing it, or should I say broiling it? <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. Let's see if you have a chance to go five Sorry, for five. Guys. Here's question number five for Susan. You have a perfect score thus far. The Purdue Company buys thousands of tons of a type of flour to add to their chicken feed. It gives egg yolks a deeper color and actually turns the chickens yellow as well. Backyard chicken farmers can grow the same flour for similar results. What is this flour? Marigold flour. That is correct. Susan Raleen, five wow. for five, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. wow. I'm sorry, Paul, you did not get a chance to, uh, to show off with your grain knowledge. I mean, you got to give him that grain. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> grain is life. Yeah. Grain is life. All right, and now, Susan, here is your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It's time for your cluster fact. Ooh. This question is so high-level, we'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. The uh -oh. answer is worth up to three points. Uh -oh. Here we go. Chicken manure isn't just disgusting, it's also useful. According to Global Poultry Technical Director for Merck Animal Health, Dr. Linnea Newman, what are the top three uses of chicken manure? Um, number one, fertilizer. All right. Number two, fuel. Mm hmm And number three, I think speeding up composting. 
speeding up composting. All right, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Here with us tonight via phone from her home office in the Adirondacks, we have Global Poultry Technical Director for Merck Animal Health, Dr. Linnea Newman. Dr. Newman, are you there? I am here, hello everybody. Hello, Dr. Newman, very nice to speak with you. Now, I understand that you are a veterinarian with a board certified specialty in poultry. That is correct. Uh, but I have to ask, uh, why poultry as your specialty? Well, when I was in veterinary school, I found that I really liked herd health, epidemiology on big population medicine instead of individual animal health. I was too soft <laughs> to be able to do some of the companion animal things. And of the herd health options, pigs, cattle, horses, um, chickens were less likely to step on me, kick me, <laughs> and otherwise hurt me in some way. <laughs> now, are there many women uh, in this field? There are now, but when I started in 1986, I was the first female working for a large poultry company. They were so desperate for poultry veterinarians at that time, they'd even take a girl. Wow. <laughs> it was... Imagine now that. Now there are lots of us. Now we, we probably outpace the guys. Now it's kind of an interesting uh, occupation because uh, your company, if all goes well, they're, they're raising these broiler chickens to be used as food. Is that right? The original company that I worked for, yes. Right. And so you're trying to get them healthy enough to be eaten? Absolutely. Okay. Have, <laughs> is that ever, is... have farms that have between 50 and 100,000 birds on them, and you don't want to see those chickens get sick. You want to see that they actually make it to somebody's dinner plate in a way that they're healthy and the people who eat them stay healthy as well. Because if, we, if, if a human eats a chicken that maybe has a disease, that could also affect the, the human adversely. That's correct. Right. May I ask yeah, a please, question? Please, do, Paul. Dr. Newman, um, chickens, you got to give them that grain, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely you do. All right. Thank it's you. been verified. Thank you. All right, doctor, let's get to the reason that we brought you uh, on with us tonight as far as our game goes. You heard the question that we asked of Susan. We wanted to know, according to somebody named Dr. Linnea Newman, uh, what are the top three uses of chicken manure? Helen, let's remind everyone of the first answer that Susan gave us. Susan Orlean said fertilizer. And Dr. Newman, is that correct? Absolutely. That is the number one. Yay! Very good. All right. Uh, very good, Susan. Uh, Helen, what was the second use that Susan said was used for chicken... Well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Helen, what did Susan say for the second answer? <laughs> Susan said fuel. Dr. Newman? That's also correct. Yes. All right. And new use, the gasification to make methane or biofuels, bio-oil, are just being explored and starting to become more commonly used. Uh, all right. And finally, <laughs> Helen, what was the third answer that Susan gave for the use of chicken manure? Susan said, speeding up composting. Dr. Newman? Yeah, that one doesn't quite do it. Oh, <laughs> terribly sorry. Is, is, that so, is that a use of chicken manure that is common, though? You, it, to speed up composting, you generally windrow. You put it in piles, but you don't add chicken manure to it. Oh, okay, so um, not correct. What, what, is the, what is the correct answer for the third use? Can I take a guess? Sure, Paul. You convert it into chicken salad? <laughs> As the old expression goes. Yeah. Uh, what is the third use that is common it, for chicken manure, Dr. Newman? It's actually worse. It's converting <laughs> it into hamburger. What? What? Oh my God. Cattle can eat chicken manure oh. and convert it into protein. So oh. can fish. Whoa. So they use often uh, in Asia. You'll find a a poultry facility with a slatted floor over a fish pond. What? And the manure drops through into the fish pond and helps to fertilize the microbes in the pond, as well as some of the, the uh, leftover feed in the manure is directly useful. And cattle can convert urea into protein. I was feeling really smug that I don't eat animals with four legs, but then you also said fish, and I'm like, ew. Yeah. I think what we've learned today is everybody eats chicken poop. Mm. 
But All right, you have doc- to realize what else fish eat anyway. Oh, la 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 <laughs> la 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 la. <laughs> Say no more, please. All right. I love my salmon. <laughs> Dr. Newman, if people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they go? They can go to MerckAnimalHealth.com. Excellent. Well, we appreciate your joining us, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Linnea Newman. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Helen, let's get a score recap at the end of Susan's round. At the end of that round, Susan Orlean has eight points, and Paul F. Tompkins has three points with a round of questions coming up. That's right. We're going to talk with Paul about a topic he knows about. Plus, later, Susan and Paul will go head-to-head in our Fast Facts round to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself! Is there a dog in a car at a bar on the street? Yay! I'm Allegra Ringo, a small dog owner. My dog, Pistachio, howls when she's excited. And I'm Renee Culvert, a big dog owner. My dog, Tugboat, tips over when he's sleepy. And we co-host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog that airs every Tuesday. We bring you all things dog. Yes, dog news, dog tech, dogs we met this week. We also have pretty famous guests on butt legs. We're not going to let them talk about their projects. No. Just want to hear about those dogs. We don't want to hear about your stuff, only your dogs. So join us every Tuesday on Max Fun. Hey, everybody, J. Keith Van Stratton here. Guess what? We've got some exciting news. We are coming to New York City. That's right, for two live shows very, very soon. Saturday, July 21st, and Sunday, July 22nd, two different shows, each at noon o'clock. A phrase that I just invented. They're going to be at Caveat NYC on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Tickets and information are at GoFactorPod.com. This is going to be a full-on show that you're going to be able to hear months before it drops here on Max Fun. I'm coming. Helen Hong, the co-host, is going to be there. Plus, of course, wonderful celebrity guests and surprise experts. You can get all the latest information and tickets at GoFactorPod.com. GoFactorPod.com. Please come see us. Say hello. Be our new best friend or an audience member. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself, where our score is Paul F. Tompkins with three points and Susan Orlean with eight points. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, everybody. Paul, I could talk about chicken poop the rest of the night, but that was not one of your many interests. Paul, of your many... Before tonight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Paul, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about SCTV, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and the movie Jaws. Yes. Today, we're going to talk to you about... Jaws! Yeah! Oh, I was rooting for that one. Uh, why Jaws? Why is it that you know so much about it, and what do you love about it so much? I've just seen it so many times. It's, it's like, it's from an era of movie making that um, I, I really love where you had these um, movies that were, it was, it, it was like the last sort of adult-oriented blockbuster, you know what mm. I mean? Where it was like, it was a movie for grown-ups that grown-ups could enjoy. And it's very, um, I love the dialogue, I love the performances, um, and uh, it's got a scary shark in it, you know? Yeah. It's Absolutely. got everything. How old were you when you first saw it? I think I was like seven years old. Oh, wow. What? And, and did you, you never go to the beach again? No, I, for some reason, it did not freak me out. <gasps> I, I loved it. I, I, I instantly loved it. It was not, I mean, it was not... It was not traumatic scary to mm-hmm. me. It was regular. For whatever reason, it was regular. It was, it was scary in the way it was supposed to be scary for me. Terrific. And, and uh, how recently have you seen it? When's the last time you watched it? Um, I think probably last 4th of July. Okay. Yeah. And um, it's funny. Uh, when I was asking around to find experts and, and telling them that, that uh, this was a topic of yours, a lot of people seem to know that this was something you know a lot about. Is this something that, you, that you've talked about or written about before? It's come up before. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give it's us come up once or twice. Okay. Uh, like when you're interviewed or on, on shows? or. Well, I, uh, the most famous example was I, I since childhood, uh, coveted the blazer that the mayor wears, Mary Larry Vaughn. Um, he has this this blazer that's covered with anchors, um, and it's like a, a sort of pale. It's almost like a gray blue uh, covered with white anchors. It and is I, a great blazer. It's a great blazer. I noticed blazer. it right away. I searched for it high and low for years and years and years, and then I somehow put it out online. Like I want to find this blazer. I can't find it. And somebody, care of uh, uh, Earwolf, the podcast network, somebody sent me a swatch of material, <gasps> and they said, here's where you can, you can get this material, you can have it made. What? And so I took it to um, a tailor in West Hollywood. His name is Sabo. Uh, he's a fantastic tailor, and he loves to make interesting things. And um, I found this material, <laughs> I brought it to him, and he made me a full three-piece suit oh, of this material. Oh, wow. Um, Why? 
are you not wearing it right now? Or constantly, really. Well, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't know what the topic was going right. to be. I didn't want to, it would have been embarrassing <laughs> if it had not been Jaws. All right, well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in Jaws to test your mastery in the subject. Uh, but before that, to give you a chance to show off, here are five trivia questions about the topic, each worth a point. And again, if you want it, you're allowed a total of two hints for these five questions. Now, Susan, of course, if Paul gets any of them wrong, you will have a chance to steal. How much do you know about Jaws? Eh. <laughs> Jaws eats grain. Uh, you gotta right. give him that grain. You gotta give him that grain. <laughs> all right, Paul, here's question number one about Jaws. Jaws is famous for its iconic score, of course, featuring da-da... Who wrote that score for Jaws? Uh, Mr. John Williams. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Of course, John Williams, who, as we record, is the most nominated living person in Academy Awards history. All right, number Across two. all categories. All categories. He's had the most nominations of any living person. Show Holy off. Moly. Right. Uh, I have a feeling you're going to know this. In what fictional town does Jaws take place? Amity Island. Helen? Of course, that's, that's correct. That's right. Uh, in the book, of course, Amity was in New York, and in the movie, it was in New England. Uh, number three, Jaws was nominated for four Oscars and won three. Name two of the three awards it won. Oh, boy. I'm going to say it won best score. I think John Williams probably won for that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it won best screenplay. Score and screenplay. Helen, is that correct? That is not Not correct. correct. I'm sorry. Susan with a chance to steal. Um, Production design. Is that the terminology in Oscar land? We'll translate it if necessary. Okay. And, well, I would go with score. Yeah, that's fine. You can use that again. Okay. So score and production design. Helen? Also not correct. No, I'm sorry. No. Uh, It won uh, best music, best score, as you said. It also won for best editing and for best sound mixing. Best sound Ah. mixing. They're both good. The editing is great. And the sound is mixed. Yeah. Just perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, By the way, it was nominated for best picture, but it lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There you go. All right. Let's see if you can bounce back with number four. There are many famous lines of dialogue in Jaws, and director Brian Singer named his production company after one of them. What is the line? That's some bad hat, Harry. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. I don't even remember that line. What's that line? It's the best. (laughs) Roy Scheider, he's a cop from New York. He's terrified of the water. He doesn't want to be there. He's he's got the shark attack on his mind. They won't close the beaches, blah, blah, blah. This guy who's like obviously an islander, this old man comes up. He's got this weird fishing, he's got a weird <laughs> swimming cap on. And he's talking to him. He's like, we, oh, we know all about you, Chief. You don't ever go in the water. And then he just shuts him down. He goes, that's some bad hat, Harry. And he just walks away. It's a perfect burn. It's just a fashion disc? Yeah, it's a fashion disc. <laughs> all right, here's number five. There are many not-so-famous lines of dialogue in Jaws, and one of them is said by the town secretary who fields complaints from the residents. I can tell you knew this before I finished asking it. What does she say some nine-year-olds are doing? They are karateing the fences. Helen? That is correct. Yes, karateing the picket fences, but we'll give yeah. that to you. Karateing the picket karate-ing fences. the picket that lady. fences. Oh. Uh, that was not how the line was written, as you probably know in the screenplay, but the woman was not a professional actor, and That's she could not say the line correctly. <laughs> and thus, karateing the picket fences entered the vernacular. Uh, all right, Paul, Wait, you did... What was the line yeah. she was supposed to say? I think she was supposed to say like they were karate, karate shopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know what? She was efficient. She realized why use two words when you could use one. Everybody Absolutely. got it. Yeah. Uh, all right, Paul, you've done very well, but now here's your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It's time for your cluster fact. All right. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. The correct answer is worth up to three points. Here we go. Jaws, of course, is based on a book, but the books don't stop there. So for up to three points, who wrote the book the movie is based on, who with the book's author co-wrote the screenplay, and what book did that co-author write chronicling his experience making the movie? Uh, The book was written by Peter Benchley. Uh, the collaborator with Peter Benchley on the screenplay was Carl Gottlieb, and the book that Carl Gottlieb wrote was The Jaws Log. Didn't need a lot of time to think. Helen has written down those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Can I introduce him, Helen? (laughs) Because I recognized him sitting over there. What? 
expert is screenwriter of Jaws and author of the Jaws Log, Mr. Carl Godley. Oh my goodness. Mr. Godley, we tried so hard to keep you hidden from Mr. Tompkins, but to no avail. I was, I was in his eye line. I couldn't help notice. Uh, <laughs> oh, he spotted uh, you You can bring right that microphone right, right up to your mouth there. Okay. <laughs> okay, there we are. Now I'm talking. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Paul handled your introduction very well, but he neglected to mention that in addition to being the uh, screenwriter collaborator on Jaws, you also are an Emmy Award winning writer whose credits include The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, Caveman, and The Jerk. Slacker. Not at all. If, if 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 I was if I was a Jeopardy category, it would be his hits begin with a J. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, how did you go from being such a prolific comedy writer, producer, and director to writing Jaws, which has some great comedy lines, but certainly is not classified in that genre? Uh, there was a new kid in town working at Universal who I was friends with, and I had acted in a couple of his movies. Uh, his television films, uh, Something Evil and something, the, the Savage Report. And we were pals and we hung out and then uh, he went off to do Sugarland Express and then Stephen came back and said, I'm gonna be doing this script next, take a look at it. And I gave him my thoughts on it. And he said, it'd be great if you could be on it as an actor because you'd be on the set, you know, we mm -hmm. could uh, work with the extras. I know you're an improviser and you do comedy. So uh, I uh, read for the casting director at Universal. I was cast in, in the movie, uh, playing the part of the newspaper editor. And then uh, I, a few weeks before production, we had a meeting uh, about the script and I offered my thoughts and they said, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, at that time, I was a story editor on The Odd Couple at ABC. Wow. Uh, and I had to, uh, on one day's notice, walk away from television and go into the unknown world and, of features. And not just walk away from television, walk away from The Odd Couple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't regret the decision, but, uh, and, cause, and in those days, the, the going from television to the movies was a big deal. Now, everybody in the movies wants to be in television because there's <laughs> better money, better writing, you know, there's more to look at. Were you able to still keep your gig as the, as the actor, the newscaster? Uh, yes, but as a writer, I had to cut the part. <laughs> you had to cut your own parts? The, the hardest thing I ever did uh, in, as, as a writer was to reduce the importance of the character of the editor in the film and take lines away from him and whole scenes that you know, had, had to come out. It was, it was tragic. Now, uh, one of the most famous lines from Jaws is, of course, we're going to meet a bigger boat, and, and I've read in lore that that was actually improvised by Roy Scheider? Uh, for years, I refused to take credit for that line because I, I also thought it was ad-libbed by Scheider. Mm -hmm. But I would, you know, I kind of rationalize it. Well, I created a character that he inhabited fully, so when are you time to make something <laughs> up? <laughs> but then, then one of the Jaws fanatics out there, and there are many, and, and they've, they've still framed it, you know, and watched it frame by frame, and, mm -hmm. And uh, one of Get them suits made out of swatches and things of that nature. <laughs> yeah. So one of them pointed me to a documentary uh, where Scheider, in an interview, says, "Oh, that was in the script." So I immediately felt better about that. Wait, you don't remember writing that line? I don't remember much about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was. It was the seventies. <laughs> yeah. It was the 70s. It was it was a rather pressured situation. Scheider later elaborates in that in the outtakes from that documentary. He said the uh, the producers Zanuck and Brown were incredibly stingy and cheap, and they didn't buy the proper support vessels to be with the boat, with the camera boat out at sea. They had a barge called the, the SS Garage Sail. Because it, <laughs> it had lights and everything. And they, should, they needed a, a, a bigger boat. So it became a catchphrase on the set, we're gonna need a bigger boat because every time something went wrong, it was in part due to the fact that there was not enough support vessel to you know, shelter the, the location from the wind, to mm. carry stuff. So they, at about three, two months in, they, they relented and hired the boat they should have 
hired for the first, <laughs> oh, wow. which was a, uh, a ocean-going tug called the uh, the Whitefoot, which was a big ocean-going tugboat that had a salon and a place for the actors to rest between takes, and you could have their meals out out of the wind and the waves. So it was like mm. the movie production needed a bigger boat. Yes, and and it, <laughs> and it was a phrase that we used whenever anything went wrong. You know, yeah. some somebody knocked a light over or something fell. You know, into right. into the shot. They're going to say, "Well, we need a bigger boat." <laughs> oh, so he was being inside jokey. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in non-Jaws uh, related news, uh, tell us what you're working on now. It's actually a musical. Yes, I'm doing a, a, a musical based on a true story about a couple of Americans who uh, were in vaudeville in 1916 when times were tough in vaudeville, and they figured, ah, the British Empire is fighting a war. There's going to be no men. So a couple of young guys like us, song and dance guys, if we went to Australia, we could probably get work or anywhere else in the British Empire. So they stowed away on a ship bound for Australia and were discovered and jailed when they got there as German spies because they were, <laughs> they were New York Jews. <laughs> and in the eyes of the skipper, that made them German spies. <laughs> so they were taken off the ship in chains in Auckland, New Zealand, where the Auckland Jewish community heard about them, hired lawyers, they proved their bona fides as, as entertainers. They, there was an expert witness who testified on their behalf, who was an American ventriloquist who happened to be playing Auckland. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. This is all based on newspaper clippings and scrapbook materials. The judge uh, said, well, you know, it appears that you're not uh, criminals. And then a guy stood up in the, in the courtroom and said, uh, my name is Benjamin Fuller of Fuller Amusements. If you'll, your worship will release these boys, I'll, I'll put them on stage. So they walked out of the courtroom. They played piano. <laughs> they walked out of the courtroom onto the stage of the Empress Theater in Auckland, billed as the Stowaways. <laughs> and is that the title of the musical? And that it was the title of the musical. And when can I audition? Because this sounds right up my alley. <laughs> and, and the other title is Are You Lonesome Tonight? Parentheses, it's not about Elvis. <laughs> that sounds very exciting. All right, well, uh, that's great. We're going to look forward to that. All right, well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here tonight as far as our game goes. Uh, you heard the question that we asked Paul. We wanted to know who wrote the book that Jaws the Movie was based on, who co-wrote the screenplay, and what was the book that that co-writer wrote later. Helen, let's remind everyone of the three answers that Paul gave. Paul said Peter Benchley, Carl Gottlieb, and the Jaws log. And Mr. Gottlieb? Absolutely correct. On all three counts, three points. And you are showing the audience uh, a new version of the Jaws log? This is the 30th anniversary edition. There's another edition after that. And, uh, <laughs> and from my personal and, collection, this is my first edition of the oh, Jaws that log, that, 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 which I happily and proudly keep that, on my shelf. That's the 1975 one. Yeah, it's been in print. You know, uh, It went out of print briefly. I recaptured the copyright, reissued it, and it's still selling. It's Excellent. Best, best it's selling. a terrific book. Mr. Carl Gottlieb, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Helen, let's get a score recap as we go into our final round. At the end of that round, Susan Orlean has nine points and Paul F. Tompkins has ten points. Very, very close game. All right, it's now time for our final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read ten statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Susan and alternate between each guest, keep the discussion to a minimum. Each correct answer is worth one point. This will determine the winner. Again, the answer to each statement is true or false. Here we begin. Susan, Bob Dylan was born in Cuba. False. Correct. Paul, Bob Dylan is older than 70. True. Correct. Susan, Bob Dylan is older than 80. False. Correct. That's right. As we record this, he is 77. Paul, Bob Dylan was bar mitzvahed. True. Correct. Susan, Bob Dylan has never won a Grammy. False. Correct. He has 10, in fact. Paul, Bob Dylan has never won an Oscar. False. Correct. That's right. He won for his songs, Things Have Changed, from Wonder Boys. Susan, Bob Dylan has never had a top ten hit. False. Incorrect. No, he has never had a top ten hit. Paul, Bob Dylan was portrayed in a movie by Heath Ledger. True. Correct. Susan, Bob Dylan was portrayed in a movie by Kate Blanchett. True. Correct. And finally, Paul, Bob Dylan was portrayed in a movie by Meryl Streep. False. Correct. No, that's right. That was Susan Orlini who was portrayed by Meryl Streep. Let's give a nice hand to both of our contestants, Paul F. Tompkins and Susan Orlean, as Helen tabulates the final score. We've had a great game tonight, very high scoring on both counts. 
Helen, are you ready to reveal the winner of today's game? I sure am. At the end of the game, Susan Orlean has 13 points and Paul F. Tompkins has 15 points. Congratulations, Paul F. Tompkins is your facting champion. Paul, what will you do with your championship? I'm just, I just want to go out there and spread the word about chickens and grain, guys. <laughs> gotta give them grain. You gotta give them that gotta grain. Gotta give them that grain. Uh, all right, we want to give everyone a chance to promote any upcoming products, appearances, or services. Susan Orlean, what do you have going on? I've got a new book coming out, the library book, that will be released in October. Susan Orlean, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Mr. Paul F. Tompkins. Uh, July 14th, uh, my podcast, Spontaneous Nation, will be headlining the first ever We the People Improv Festival in my hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, tickets are on sale now. You can go to paulftompkins.com slash live. Paul F. Tompkins, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Folks, you are very lucky because your co-host is the lovely Miss Helen Hong. If you live in Malaysia, you can see me in Kuala Lumpur, July 5th through the 12th. If you don't, check my calendar, HelenHong.com. Helen Hong, ladies and gentlemen. And me, you can follow me on Twitter at J underscore Keith. I've been appearing on a lot of podcasts as different guests, and uh, I've had a great time doing that. So if you follow me on Twitter, you can see uh, where you can listen to me. That just leaves me to thank Paul F. Tompkins, Susan Orlean, Dr. Linnea Newman, Carl Gottlieb, Helen Hong. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. <laughs> Like what you hear? Come see us live. It's free. Go to GoFactorPod.com for our schedule and tickets. And give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts like Marky Mike did. He said, facting awesome. Great way to learn very specific information in an entertaining way. Thanks, Marky Mike. Helen? Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton and comes to you via transcription from Angel City Brewery in downtown Los Angeles. Questions on Go Fact Yourself were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. It is produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Go Fact Yourself's theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Maximum Fun's senior producer is Laura Swisher. The show is edited by Julian Burrell. David McKeever is our live sound engineer. Special thanks to Jesse Thorne, Dave Bianchi, Jerome Vered, Leora Saul, Stella Chow, Daniela Zeltzer, and Christine Vallada. I've been Helen Hong. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.